Hello everyone, Rob Howe here, and welcome to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. Just wanted to let you know that if you've been listening all the way to this point from the beginning, you're inching ever closer to hearing over 1,000 years of living with type 1 diabetes. Now, certainly there are some similarities in how we all deal with the disease, but I find it super rewarding to dig into the tactics, tips, mindsets, and insights that make us all different. If you hear something new, interesting, or polarizing, drop me a line. I'd love to discuss it. Uh, Holler at me on Instagram or shoot me an email. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics from all around the world. And my very special guest today is Miss Erin Akers. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. And Erin, you are calling from Seattle, Washington, correct? That is true. Uh, the rainy capital of the the, Wash- or the United States, although we are getting some sun today. Hey, uh, you know, the Northwest is an amazing place to be in the summer, so I'm a little bit jealous. It's like 105 degrees right now outside in Dallas. So. Oh, God. That Oh, I'm actually from Texas, so I know that heat, that dry heat, uh, but I am very happy to be in the Pacific Northwest this summer. It's beautiful right now. Well, um, let's uh, let's dive in and kind of chat. Um, for those of you, uh, you know, I know that you heard the podcast. Um, I believe I'm, I'm trying to remember. Uh, uh, Rebecca, Rebecca was my guest from New Zealand, and that's right. Yeah, uh, I know that that's sort of how we got connected was through was through her. Um, mm-hmm. so let's kind of just start from the beginning, uh, tell us, you know, your diagnosis story and how you kind of came into the T1D family. Um, and we'll kind of go from there. All right. Uh, so the type one diabetic family is, uh, both literal and figurative for me. Um, my brother was diagnosed as a diabetic, a type one diabetic before me uh, about two weeks. And, um, when I started, uh, to show some symptoms of being sick, um, immediately, just with the flu, actually, uh, immediately brought me in, though, to have me tested. She had a, a hunch that something might not be right, and since my brother had just been diagnosed, she was very skittish. Um, and they tested me, and my blood sugar was only in the 200s, and so they, they actually caught it before I had kind of full-blown symptoms. I wasn't, you know, drinking a lot. I wasn't feeling ketones yet, and I got diagnosed early. And so I kind of got caught on a whim because of my brother, and I was brought into the diabetic uh, family. And so I was 10 years old at the time, and so that was 18 years ago for me that I was diagnosed with diabetes. And at the time, the education of diabetics was really different. It was very much about being obsessive about what you eat and being obsessive about your numbers. And that's really what I honed in on in my diagnosis was the obsessive aspect of diabetes control for me. And it led me down a very dark path with obsession around food. And that's kind of how my diabetes diagnosis journey took me into the advocacy world of diabetes and how I ended up um, a diabetes advocate and then eventually opening up my own nonprofit for diabetics um, is because I thought when I was diagnosed, the way that they taught diabetes education was not the best way to teach a 10-year-old how to kind of have a relationship with food and have a relationship with insulin. And so that's kind of how my diagnosis story got started. Well, and I definitely want to focus on that because that's a big reason... um why, you know, when we're talking about, you know, diagnosis and, you know, the different experiences that people have, I realized very early on in the diabetics doing things process 
that where you're diagnosed and the rhetoric that's communicated to you by your doctors at your diagnosis is extremely important in your development, uh, over your, especially over the first few years with type 1. So, um, A, I, I want to talk about you know what it was like to be diagnosed um, within the first you know, two weeks, uh, you know, two weeks from your brother's diagnosis. So like everyone's like already sort of barely recovered from that. Um, it was, it was a hard month in the acres household for sure. We were definitely just trying to recover and still learning what it meant to be a diabetic family. And kind of, we had just taken, you know, done that first step of where you take all the really sugary foods out of the house and you know, we'd removed the Kool-Aid and the soda and we'd gone through that process. And I remember right after my brother was diagnosed, it had been a few days, probably a week, and I was eating ice cream from an ice cream truck, and I was kind of making fun of him a little bit because I was a bratty 10-year-old little sister that he couldn't eat it yet. Um, like I said, our endocrinologist was an old-school guy, very much into the no sugar of any kind once you're diabetic, and so I was making fun of the fact that he couldn't eat it. And a week later, I was diagnosed with diabetes. And then, you know, it was very much karmic about the fact that I was not an understanding little sister when he got diagnosed. And so a week later, the universe was like, well, if you're not going to be understanding about your brother's diagnosis, you're going to get to live it with him. And so for the next 18 years, we, we've been doing this together. You know, whenever the, I had a low blood sugar the next day, I could talk to him about it. So it was nice having kind of a friend in that sense where a lot of other people, when they grow up, feel a lot more alone. I always had my brother there with me, which was a very nice part of getting diagnosed so close to him is I always had someone to talk to. And I, I think it really emphasized how important peer support is for me is having that close relationship with him. Well, and I think that's such an important part of a, of a diabetic's life, especially a type one that like sort of goes overlooked or maybe there isn't as much publicity about. Um, I know I had Derek Thieler on the podcast and he talked about, you know, his sister was diagnosed three years after him. So just having that person to rely on, um, mm -hmm. and just, you know, that e even if they don't know it, uh, just them going through a day to day, you know, can just provide so much positive reinforcement and motivation for somebody. Um, especially, especially seeing that someone else is living those small challenges, not, not even necessarily the big ones, but just the little things that we deal with, the sight changes, the irritation over get, having to get poked and like all of the little things that we don't necessarily talk about, having living with someone who has diabetes, you just see them also dealing with it. And you know, this is just part of the disease. I am not abnormal. This is just what living with diabetes is like. And so for me, having him there was very much part of normalizing a disease that made me feel abnormal in the rest of the world. Well, and, and I want to focus on that, too, because that comes back to my second piece about the rhetoric that doctors and, and nurses use during diagnosis is, you know, it, you do feel alone depending on where you're diagnosed. Not everybody has a community of type ones around them where they are. Mm -hmm. uh, so it does feel like you're sort of dealing with this all alone, especially when you're a younger kid and you don't really understand. It's hard for you to process why you have to do things and other people don't. Um and, and so I, I want to talk about that as well. Like when you guys were not only one of you, but both of you diagnosed, the language that you talked about that was sort of very focused on the number and very relentless and very sort of harsh um, and sharp in terms of the language that was used with you uh, during diagnosis, 
I want to talk a little bit about that. I want I want to focus on those feelings that sort of shaped your relationship with food and type one early on. Yeah, I think there needs to be a lot more focus on language because when you're talking about, for so many of us, we're diagnosed as children. That's the peak diagnosis time is is teenagers uh, is. Um, Children and adolescents is the peak diagnosis for type 1 diabetic. And so these are kids who are really listening to the language that their doctors are using. And when they're using good and bad to describe things like food, and when you're having a printout of numbers and a doctor walks in with a piece of paper and all there are are 100 numbers on them, and they say you're either good or bad based on these numbers, what you have come out of this are teenagers who are obsessed with food and obsessed with numbers and we're not asked about our feelings all the time and when I, I was I mean this was of course 18 years ago but 18 years ago we weren't asked about our mental health and how we felt about our diabetes and about burnout we were just asked about the numbers or what we were eating and then sent on our way and we were either good or bad based on that and so I attached the labels of good and bad to food which later led to restrictive behavior really obsessive behavior and a really unhealthy relationship with food and in fact the fact that diabetics are two and a half times more likely to end up with an eating disorder than their non-diabetic peers shows you that we have a heightened risk because of things like the languaging that we're getting taught as children. We're getting these enhanced lessons around food, but we're also, we're, they're not teaching us to be healthier or more in tuned with food, just to be more obsessive around food. Right, because I think, like, like you said, using words like good and bad, um, good and bad blood sugar, good and bad diabetic, good and bad food, um, those are traps, right? Because yeah. there's no such thing, right? They're, um, everyone's different. Every meal is different, even if it's the same ingredients, same portions. I um, can eat the same thing three days in a row and have a different blood sugar every day based on my hormones, the weather, and what stress I'm under. And yet, I, walking in as a 10-year-old, do not understand that complexity. was not taught that. I was just taught that if I eat the right foods and if I take the right insulin, then I should be a good diabetic. And no one taught me that that's not really the way diabetes works. And in fact, the fact that we're taught diabetes control and the word is control, well, you don't control diabetes any more than you control cancer. Diabetes is managed. And yet we're taught we should control a disease, but that's not the way it works. And so we're given this perfectionism that leads to things like eating disorders and anxiety and depression. And then doctors are surprised that diabetics have a 33% higher chance of having depression and anxiety and a two and a half times higher of eating disorders. Okay, I want you. Uh, first of all, that your I love your passion. That's it's incredible. Um, I, I want. <laughs> Thank uh, you. We had a little bit of a cutout the last thing when you talked about. So I want you to say that one more time. Like diabetics are thirty three percent more likely to have uh, mental illnesses like anxiety and depression, and two oh, and a half times. Yeah, more diabetics likely. are thirty three percent. Yeah, diabetics are thirty percent um, have a thirty percent higher increase of depression and anxiety, and a two and a half times chance of ending up with an eating disorder. And that's because we are taught to be obsessive with our insulin and our to be controlling every aspect of our life. And so when suddenly something is out of control, we are taught that that is literally coming after our very existence, our very life. And so we have these higher rates of anxiety and these higher rates of depression because of the very way we are taught to live our lives by these doctors. 
Well, and and let's be fair as well because you know you talked about diabetes being managed. Um, an endocrinologist mm-hmm. is only a percentage of of that. So, for example, you talked about eating disorders. You talked about anxiety and depression. Neither of which of, of those really fall into a endocrinologist's purview. Um, mm-hmm. So. I really want to talk like as after you were diagnosed and obviously you're very young um, as you're going into as you're going into the next few years and sort of figuring out those those toughest pieces, not only the toughest parts of of your journey as a diabetic in your first few years, but also as a teenager and going into those tough formative years uh, with hormones and changes. What what was that like for you? What did that what did that manifest itself as? So I was around 14 when the diabetes burnout and the frustrations around being a, just a teenage woman kind of all came to a head and I started omitting my insulin and engaging in the practice that's known as diabulimia. Um, I was tired of being diabetic. I was tired of being different than my friends and I wanted a change. I wanted a freedom. I wanted to be free from the diabetes and I just stopped giving it the care and the attention that I needed to. And I slowly just kind of to pull back from my diabetes the way you would pull back from school or job. Kind of, I was done with it. I had felt like I had put so much pressure on myself for the first four years trying to be perfect, trying to be that perfect diabetic we're all shooting for, that, you know, perfect A1C, those perfect blood sugars. And that quest for perfection really led me down a dangerous path. It led me to burnout and it led me to diabulimia. And so when I was 14, I just decided I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't deal with the unhealthy relationships with food, the unhealthy relationship with perfectionism and insulin. And I just quit. I stopped taking my insulin. I mean, obviously not altogether, but I greatly reduced my insulin intake. I started engaging in diabulimia and I did that for on and off for almost a decade. And I let my A1C go into, I mean, my highest was probably around 15. I ended up with all sorts of complications that I still deal with today from it. And I stopped handling, dealing with all of the emotions that come with diabetes. I just wanted to be numb and I wanted that high blood sugar numbness and I wanted to be able to eat whatever I wanted. And instead of doing it in moderation, I had been so restrictive about it. And so I just let myself eat whatever I wanted and I stopped taking my insulin and I fell down into a very dark path that, um, because of the way that diabetes works, led me down complications that I'll have for the rest of my life. And I want to back up a little bit because I want I want you to offer some context around, um, first of all, an awareness about diabulimia itself. But diabetes burnout is a very hot button, popular topic, especially among diabetes teens, because of what you're talking about. Um, so, give us a little bit of background on. I, I think you know. Yeah, most, most I of our, think it's that quest for perfection. Yeah. No, and I and I totally agree you know, it, because you're you're a child, right? Like you don't really have you're not equipped to deal with that type of burden that you've placed on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, but I also want you to give us like a little bit of education on diabulimia itself and how it manifests. I think you know most of our listeners can put the two together, but I want to hear from you and also uh, you know how many people are affected by this and you know how many people are we talking about that are going through these types of things. And, you know, you talked about it for over a decade. Um, and I also want to know, like, what 
what were your conversations like with your family, with your brother, with your doctor, and, and just sort of where you were at during those times? Yeah, so it was it was a dark time. Um, it happened for a lot of reasons. Um, it started because of the diabetes burnout. Um, like we talked, it's so common for so many diabetics. I think, you know, they just did a study out of, I want to say Behavioral Diabetes Institute on diabetes burnout, where they showed that it's something that literally every diabetic is going to face. It's not an 80th percentile, a 90th percentile, it's a 100th percentile. If you're diabetic at some point in your life, you're going to face diabetes burnout because we're taught to be perfectionists in our blood sugar quest. And there's nothing you can go at 100% of the time trying to be perfect and not eventually get burnt out. There's just nothing you can quest for that hard and not eventually get tired of it. And so for me and for so many teens, I hit that burnout really early because I, it's so hard to be a child and trying to learn who you are and what you want to do in the world while also being your own pancreas and also trying to be both regular kid and not die at the same time. And so that quest for me led me to diabulimia, which is the practice of omitting insulin in order to lose weight. And for me, it came because my doctor, I was an overweight child, I was medically overweight, and my doctor kept pushing weight loss. He kept telling me how important weight loss was going to be and was not a great, and again, this is the importance of numbers and how important it is for a diabetic to be in those good numbers and within a good weight range. And so he pushed me kind of towards the weight loss track and towards the weight loss track and how important it is for a diabetic to be fit. And I decided anything to lose weight was important. And I stopped, I really kind of pulled away from my brother and I stopped talking to kind of him. And I was feeling very isolated in my diabetes. And it led me to just kind of withdraw from insulin, which is not abnormal. 35 to 40% of type one diabetic women, and these studies have been out for about 20 years now. Um, there are almost a dozen of them. Uh, have admitted to omitting insulin in order to lose weight, which is a practice known as diabulimia. And so it's a very common thing that diabetic women have been doing for over 20 years. Um, my aunt on my dad's side is actually a type 1 diabetic, and I found out it's something she did as a teenager, which means 40 years ago they were doing this as well. It's a very common practice that di diabetic women and men, we have uh, the latest study, first study just came out of Norway that also included diabetic men. So this is a practice that both diabetic men and women are engaging in, in order to lose weight as a coping mechanism for the stressors that we're putting on diabetics in a quest for perfection. Wow, that, that's, that, it's so powerful, right? That, that, and and I, I think it's easy for us to get caught up in like daily struggles as type ones, right? Uh, whether that's high blood sugar, low blood sugar, whether that's uh, insurance, whether that's doctors. Um, and until you really hear that, A, all of us are gonna go through diabetic burnout at some point, so let's accept that and help each other and build each other up. And B, that, that this has been going on for so long and that there's not a whole lot of awareness on it, it's just sort of coming to the forefront like how many people have been out there alone dealing with this? And I want to I want to ask you, you know, as you were going through this very dark place, who, who did you turn to? Where where where, you know, how how did you have those conversations? Were you able to, you know, how alone did you feel during that time? And and how did you sort of begin to climb out of it? 
So I think the biggest problem that existed for me and, and still continues pervades to exist is that that sense of isolation. Um, I think it comes from two two areas. One, I think as a diabetic community, the diabetes online community, which the doc is great and I'm a, a, ver a very active member of it, but there's a lot of shaming that still happens in the diabetes community. And we tell diabetics from diabetics to quest for that perfect A1C. And when we go online for support, we need to be offering that support and not telling diabetics, well, just take your insulin and, and shoot for that A1C of five and instead be offering some more legitimate, real-life help to other diabetics. Because I think diabetic shame from other diabetics is a real, is a real issue. And when I was going online for help, I, was, I, was, I encountered it. I encountered other diabetics just being like, well, just take your insulin. It's not that simple. It's a, it's a mental health disorder and a very real eating disorder. And it would be the equivalent of telling an anorexic just to eat. It's just not that simple. Um, um, it's it's in the DSM-4 under purging disorders. It's a very and when I tried to talk to my doctor about it when I was 14, he dropped me as a client, and it's actually what flared it from like something I was doing occasionally into a full blown disorder. Is when my endocrinologist, the man that had diagnosed me at 10 years old, asked me why my A1C had gone from a steady normal A1C into the tens and elevens at that point and still climbing. I finally told him. And well, I'm not taking my insulin to lose weight. And he dropped me as a client. He said, I can't do this anymore, or as a patient, and said, I can't do this anymore. Um, you're risking your own health. It's it's you're a non-compliant diabetic, is what he called us. And we hate that term. I don't think there is such a thing as a non-compliant diabetic because there's not a diabetic out there that's thinking, Well, I hope to go blind and die by the time I'm 40. There are diabetics in depression, there are diabetics in distress, and there are diabetics dealing with things. But there's not a diabetic out there that's hoping. Well, I really want to get complications and die in 20 years. But doctors unwilling to look for the deeper issues are dropping diabetics as non-compliant. And that's what happened to me. And not just once, but three times before I was able to find help. And so eventually I stopped going to endocrinologists as a teenager, started going to walk-in clinics to get the insulin that I needed. And it was actually a period of five years where I didn't have a steady endocrinologist and would just go get insulin at walk-ins or hospitals or one-offs from like a PCP, I would say, my endocrinologist is just moved or doesn't take my insurance anymore. Anything to not go back to see an endocrinologist because I felt shame from them too. Making the situation worse and lengthening the time I went untreated and not taking my insulin. And, I, you know, I've had my fair share of <laughs> scraps with endos over the years as well. Um, what you know, to be dropped like that. And I think, again, just like th this path of negative rhetoric and negative response to be processing this as a young person, what uh, I, I just, um, what, what were your family's thoughts? Like, you know, you're you, at this point, you know, you're, you're trying to be independent as a teenager. Um, you know, your brother is also a type one. You've got other type ones in your family. Um, who, who were you able to rely on during this time? I am immensely lucky. My mother is the mama bear from every story. She is my fiercest advocate. Um, she wrote a complaint letter to every hospital and doctor that did not treat me the way a diabetic should be treated. And so throughout the 10 years, almost 10 years, that I was struggling, she was always by my side. Um, over the years, I've been hospitalized over 50 times. 
um, for a, a range of issues um, from you know, several dozen times um, all the way up to staph infection in my spine because I had no immunity immune system because I wasn't taking my insulin. And for every trip, she was sitting there holding my hand, making sure they were treating me right no matter what, you know, because doctors don't like to take care of diabetics with high blood sugars. They're just not as understanding in the ER. And so my mom was with me every step of the way, making sure I was being treated well um, and always advocating for me and always trying to stand there with me. And she works with me now at Diabolemia Helpline. Um, she's our friends and family liaison. She is amazing. She learned so much over the 10 years that we were kind of fighting together. And there were days when I didn't want to fight for myself anymore. Most days, actually, over those 10 years, I was not unwilling to fight for my own health. And she was always there fighting for my health for me for the days that I wouldn't do it. So I was very lucky. Well, and, and I think that's so important, right? Like whether that's another type one or that's a mother or a friend or anyone uh, who's just there for you, right? And just can support you and not look at that judgment of bad or good or, um, you know, say that you're non-compliant or, or whatever the case may be or whatever the rhetoric is. Um, as, an, as an adult now with, with, a, with a partner, I have to say his support um, over the last three years, you know, when I have a low blood sugar in the middle of the night and he sits up with me and rubs my back while I'm drinking juice. And in the morning, if it's high, which it was this morning, I had a low last night, I overtreated and it was high this morning. And he just went, that's unfair. That's, you know, that's crap. And his understanding is, is just as important. Those type threes, I think. Walk, walk through the last and the good ones, are the ones that get us their nights. They, they do. And I think that they go, you know, the effect of type one, you know, like you said, on, on type threes, on significant others, on family members, um, often goes, you know, they're often goes unpraised or unheralded, but they, you know, really are sort of the, the masters behind the scenes, right? Just, mm-hmm. just a pat on the back or a rub on the back or a, Hey, you go, you okay. Or, or that's unfair. Just, just a, you know, a, just someone there to say, Hey, uh, I understand that you're going through this and I'm here for you. Not trying to fix the problem, just being there as support. Absolutely. And I think that's so important is that, and not talked about is that not trying to fix it because there is no fixing it. I'm, you know, sometimes I can't even fix the diabetes. I don't understand what it's doing. And so just that understanding of sometimes the disease does what it does has proven to be way, way more important in my recovery is that understanding than a diabetes police ever could have been, you know. And there were times when my parents tried to be the diabetes police and they thought that that was what their job was, was to police what my food intake was and to try to police my insulin. But it never worked. And the understanding route has always proven more more effective and more beneficial for both me and my brother because diabetics, we know what we need to do. And I think having that supportive loved one that understands she knows what she's doing. She's going to get there. Like she understands food is so important. And we, we try to really counsel against that diabetes police over helicoptering because it can really be an intrusion to, like you said, a teenager trying to grab their independence. You know, it can, it can really interfere with that integral part. So I definitely want to I want to focus a little bit on you know as you're coming out after that almost ten year uh, battle with diabulimia, what 
where do you go from there? And then how, how do you decide to take matters in your own hands and start the diabolemia hotline and, and running your own nonprofit and helping other people who are going through these types of things? Yeah, I, uh, it all started from a very selfish place. I came out of um, a, an eating disorder treatment center and I was very much alone. Um, when I went in to eating disorder treatment centers, there were none specifically for diabulimia. There are four now that we have helped cultivate, but when I went in, there were none. And so I went into a program in Florida um, to, to that was kind of flying by the seat of their pants. We were both kind of trying to wing it as we went. And when I came out, I felt very much alone still because although the girls in the center were great and amazing and still friends to this day, they didn't understand the diabetes part of the eating disorder and how frustrating frustrating it is to be working so hard on regaining a relationship, healthy relationship with food. And then at three in the morning, you have a blood sugar of 33 and you walk into the kitchen and you eat an entire jar of jelly because you're scared you're going to die. And you have a binge episode and that that's diabetes very specific and no one else in the house understood those issues. And, and so I came out and I, I wanted to talk and at this point I didn't know that my aunt had suffered yet and I just wanted to talk to someone and so I reached out to the National Eating Disorder Association and they said well well, this sounds like a problem we can't really so I reached out to the American Diabetes Association and they said well this is an eating disorder problem we can't help and I said well someone needs to help and so I started a Facebook support group and that's how it, it kind of all started was I just wanted to find other people because I had done the research and I knew that scientifically speaking, there were 35% of diabetic women doing this. So they were out there. I just needed to find them. And I opened a Facebook support group and within six months, we had over a thousand members from five different continents. And so I knew this was a very real issue that needed some very real help. And within a year, um, Girls were asking for more than just peer support. They needed resource. They needed trainings. Their doctors had no idea about this disease. And it turns out my endocrinologist was not the only one that was treating patients badly. This was a very, you know, large phenomenon. And girls were getting dropped and resources were going untapped. And we know, and I knew, and my mom, who is my right-hand man, kind of knew that there needed to be something done. And so in 2000, 2009, we incorporated as Diabolemia Helpline as a nonprofit to help because there was no one doing anything. And with such a large population falling between the cracks of eating disorder and diabetes, there needed to be an organization out there specifically for those who encounter both because it is such a large population and such a unique problem. And so we got, we, we got, we became a nonprofit and um, started with client care and opened a 24 hour hotline um, was our first kind of big outing or big um, ordeal, I guess, um, is we decided to open just a hotline. So girls had a place to call when they were having a crisis um, because the internet can be a great tool, but if you're in the middle of a crisis, it's not always the most helpful. You want someone to talk to. You need someone in that moment. And so we opened up the 24-hour hotline, which is staffed completely by volunteers. Um, 
who have um, who are in recovery from diabulimia and or their or and or family. So sometimes we have people who work the phones who are family members. Like my mom works um, the phone sometimes um, because so many people who call are like mothers or fathers or sisters or loved ones. And so whoever you talk to on the phone has been there, has been where you've been, has been in a crisis, has dealt with the diabetes and eating disorders firsthand. And from there, it grew into a doctor education program, and we started training centers, and now there are four eating disorder centers that specifically have tracks for diabulimia. So there's a place to go now where you can get help specifically for diabetes and eating disorders. And uh, in 2018, we're going to host the first eating disorder and diabetes conference, which is our next kind of really large um, undertaking that we're excited about. And we're just going to keep growing the awareness and the advocacy so that no one else falls in between the cracks because no one else should be suffering for a decade without any sort of, uh, in the dark, without any sort of resources because there are now so many places you can turn to help for help. And for you, you know, as you get that off the ground, which is, you know, a, a huge effort personally to do any sort of, um, you know, project that you're that close to and that you're that passionate about, um, you know, what were some of your, you know, as you think of successes or moments where you were like key moments for you in that process where you're like, wow, I, we really are helping people, you know, how, I guess not how quickly did that happen or, you know, what are those moments that stick out to you, you know, since 2009? Yeah, there have been some really amazing, um, there are the, the ones that mean the most are the the emails that we get from girls that were suffering and have been in recovery and and the and the and the one-off emails that's like where they were I was dying I was in a hospital DKA every other week and and now now I can re-embrace my life and the two that really stick out to me on a hard day because with with something like diabetes and eating disorders where it's lifelong and it's chronic and it's something where you deal with so much of what we do is insurance help now we have an insurance specialist on staff and that can be very hard to deal with um and the the two that i think that really stick out to me is we had a a girl that joined the support group um when we first opened up and she was in the uk and she was at the point where she would stop on her drive home from work to throw up such severe DKA and she would carry around water jugs with her like milk water because she was so dehydrated from work without throwing up she was very very sick and not sure about where she was going to do with her life and not sure about where she was going to go and really not wanting to die but not wanting to live anymore and she found recovery um, with the help of the support group and kind of what we were doing and in 2011, opened up Diabetics with Eating Disorders in the UK, which is um, our sister organization over there, and is doing what we do over there. And now she's in the process of getting her PhD in psychology and specializing in studying diabetics, uh, eating disorders and diabetics. And she has published several papers now on eating and seeing where she was and kind of where the good she is going to do in the world because she has taken what I wanted to do and magnified it. Um, she, they have passed 
um, guidelines in the NICE, which is um, a healthcare, the health organization over in the UK on specifically diabetes and eating disorders and how you treat them. And it's a lot easier to get legislation passed in the UK because it's a lot smaller, um, but they've been able to make huge leaps and bounds in getting um, treatment passed, treatment protocols passed over in the UK. And seeing all of the good that it really warms my heart on a hard day. Um, and a client that we had hotline when we first turned it, uh, when we first opened it, um, is now, uh, who was very, very sick, uh, was, uh, ended up in the hospital, um, with DKA several times a week, um, was contemplating suicide now has a bouncing baby girl, a two-year-old baby girl, um, moved up to Seattle to actually work with us and is now our client care coordinator. Um, Has been in recovery for three, four years now, four years now, um, happily married with a very healthy, very healthy pregnancy, has an A1C in the sixes now, a very healthy, happy um, left Indiana in a very unhealthy circumstance to really restart her life and um, is my best friend now um, and whenever things get really hard I just go over there and I play with her daughter and I remember that all of this is possible because of the work that we do and that um, there are girls all over the country and the world now living full and happy lives because of because of the work and the Facebook and the peer support and most most of that's not me. Most of that is other girls reaching out to to girls that have struggled and finding friendships and support and strength in other people. We have friendships that have crossed um, oceans. We have a girl in Canada who just went over to Scotland to see one of her best friends that they met online. And they have a beautiful friendship and they go and see each other every couple of years. And they're really strong in support and their recovery. And we've had probably 3,000 girls pass through the group now um, to have found recovery and regained a, a real hold on their life. That's incredible. Uh, so. I don't even know, like, you know, the, the amount of difference that, you know, that you, that you guys are making. That is, that is so, so powerful. And just the story of, you know, somebody going from being extremely unhealthy and contemplating suicide to now being uh, you know, directly involved with you guys, client care coordinator and, and having a, a brand new baby girl to, to look at and say, hey, this is the these are the results. These are the tangible results of the work that we do. That's super powerful. Her, her daughter is very cute. It makes it a it makes it a great uh, it's a great tangible result. And she calls me Aunt Erin. So, oh, man. Um, yeah, she's two now. And uh, it's it's there's nothing like a little girl's face to really put bring home kind of the good work that we were doing because a, an unhealthy diabetic is never going to be able to to have that that full happy mother life you know pregnancy is is completely out of the question for most of these girls when they first come to us you know their body is so unhealthy that they've been told our p- patients our client care coordinator was told she would never be able to have a child again um and so she thought she was never going to be able to be pregnant and so when she entered recovery and and became pregnant it was a real life changer for her because so many of um our clients are told that's not going to happen for you now and all they really need to do is regain control of their diabetes and they can regain control of their body and their lives 
So it, it is a beautiful thing to see. So many of our girls have gone on to um, become mothers and, and find that pregnancy that they thought was impossible. And I think that really is one of the most beautiful things is when we have a girl post, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant, I never thought it was possible. And we've had probably a dozen or so girls really kind of share their, their motherhood journeys in the group um, because so many of the girls worry that they won't be able to have kids now. And they want to sh- um, prove one of our board members, Allison, who is a former client, um, just had a boy, a beautiful baby boy um, named Archer, who was just born uh, six months ago. And they told her she wouldn't be able to have another child. And she proved them wrong. She was like, absolutely not. I can do this. And she did. And I think seeing that strength and that resilience in our clients keeps me going on a hard day as well. Without a doubt, that's that's so strong. So, uh, Aaron, I, I wanna I wanna ask you this because, like, you know, I, I ask everyone this question on my podcast, and um, I think for you, um, it, it'll it'll really resonate. Um, and I'm really just curious to see what your response will be, but. You just let's just paint the context for a second. So say you're running through an airport and you got a flight to catch and in 30 seconds, they're going to shut the gate um, door to the gate. So you will, and you can't miss the flight, but you run into someone who has either been recently diagnosed with type one or is struggling with their type one. Um, maybe not necessarily with diabulimia, but uh, you know, just, just in the day to day, what's the one thing that you tell them in that 30 seconds before you have to jump on that plane? Don't you for perfection. If I if I could if I could boil down diabetes to one to one sentence, one one tweet, um, if you will, uh, it would be it would be don't shoot for perfection. That's that's what gets you at the end. And that's what I think gets so many of us. You know, whether you end up with an eating disorder or not, I think diabetes distress and diabetes burnout, it all comes from that that quest for perfection. And nothing in life is ever going to be perfect. And so why why would we expect our diabetes to be? It's just like everything else in life. That's so true. And I think like the everything else in life, you know, we always you know, strive for perfection, but maybe can fall off. And it's just like the it's easier to say, oh, well, I'm going to have a cheat day on uh, my diet or my exercise plan or something versus mm-hmm. a cheat day with your diabetes. Like it's so, right. it's so different, but we're, we're never allowed to give ourselves that break with diabetes. But if you don't, it just, it haunts you and haunts you until there's nothing else you can think about is that quest for perfection. And at the, Although I will always be a person with diabetes, it's never going to be the first, like, it's never again going to be the thing I think about every second of every day, because that just, it led to such an unhealthy place for me. And, you know, for somebody who might be thinking that way now, um, and sort of on that unhealthy track with their thinking, where do they reach out to find you guys? What's the best way for them to get in touch? What's the, um, you know, what, how do they, how do they find help or if someone who is a friend, how do they refer them there? What's, what's that process? Yeah. So we have lots of ways to get in touch. Um, our website is diabulimiahelpline.org. Pretty simple. Um, if you want to join the Facebook group, uh, just search for diabulimia awareness on Facebook. Um, we're the only diabulimia awareness group. Um, or you can also call our helpline. The number is 425-985-3635. 
And like I said, that's 24 hours and 365 days a year. If you want to call on Christmas Eve, we have someone working on Christmas Eve. You want to call at 3 in the morning, that hotline is open at 3 in the morning. So there is never a time you can't call where someone is going to answer that phone. So you can always call that that number. And the website, of course, is always there. Um, and the support group is great because it's not just talking to one person, but there's going to be 12 people up no matter when you post, um, especially because it's um, – it's worldwide. We have people from, you know, New Zealand getting up right as we're going to bed. So it's almost always active and it's a great place. It's very, it's very, um, co-ed. We have men and women, both post people of all ages. Our oldest member is in her 70s. She's very active in posting and, um, our youngest member or the age of 18. So it really doesn't matter where you fall on that spectrum. We have people of all ages and both genders posting. So come come join the group. And even if you don't want to post, read what other people are saying. You know, kind of learn about where everyone else is. And it's people post on all points of their recovery process. So if you're just learning about diabulimia, you can come. Or if you're unsure, your recovery is starting to feel shaky again, come post or read about someone else whose recovery is starting to feel shaky again. There's no... There's no rules about where you have to be or who you have to be. It's just a group to come and feel included and know that you're not alone. Well, we will definitely include links to um, to all the different touch points uh, in the show notes. Um, and Aaron, and go ahead. If anyone wants to get a hold of me, you know, I'm on Facebook, Aaron Akers, and I'm on Instagram, and I'm on Twitter, and I love to talk, obviously. Um, and I'm always there to to reach out and to up. Uh, oh, I think we lost you there for a second. Nope. Are you there? Try try one more yep. time to say, hey, uh, just tell your personal where where they can find you personally. So I'm also on Facebook, Aaron M. Acres, and I'm on. Uh, Instagram, the diabetic dragon, and I'm on Twitter and you can always come and find me. I will always respond to an email, a tweet, any kind of, you know, shout out request. And I'm always here to talk. So if you want to just talk to me personally about your story going on, you can also reach out to me personally. Boom. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the great work you're doing. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me, Rob. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have you on the show. If there's anything we can do here uh, to help, please don't hesitate to reach out. We're always, um, you know, trying, you know, doing our best to support all of these amazing uh, causes and missions and really just doing our best to help people. So uh, anything we can do to help you and the Diabulimia hotline, uh, please, helpline, please let me know. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for your podcast. You know, I love it so much. Oh well, thank you so much for saying that. That means so much to me. I, I uh, you know, it's obviously, uh, it, it's what makes me happy. It fills my cup. So thank you so much for saying that. Diabetic advocates reaching out for other diabetics. It's really, I think, what keeps us strong. It's the diabetic community really relies on people like you, kind of spreading the good work that diabetic advocates are doing. I I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, we're all of our individual missions are you know stronger together and i mean that sort of just goes without saying but um you know the more we can do to sort of raise awareness and help each other um that's how we got connected so you know i'm happy to uh, continue to to inter make introductions and make connections and i'm so happy that we have such a great community thank you so much for having me rob
Thanks for listening to Diabetics Doing Things. Subscribe to our newsletter for weekly emails and behind-the-scenes content. And if you or someone you know has an amazing story to share, send an email to rob at diabeticsdoingthings.com.